0: record. My time begins now. Thank you, Lord. Genesis chapter 2. seven through nine, and the Lord God formed of the dust of the ground, formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Jumping down to verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Excuse me, in case you're wondering, God gave purpose to Adam. He just didn't say go lay out in the sun every day. And the Lord God commanded the man. Oh, there's commandments in the garden? Yeah. Saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely, surely die. No question about it, Adam. Make no mistake about it. The word of God will not change. The day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Turn, shake somebody's hand, greet them, smile at them. Give them a post-COVID hug or a handshake. (laughs) Don't scare me like that, sis. When we were pastoring, there were ladies that would come up to me and try to hug me, and I know they meant well, but I'm just not comfortable with hugging anybody other than my wife, at least a woman that is. It has gotten to where we, guys, we've become a little squeamish about hugging one another with all the junk that's going on in the world. But the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. And uh, we don't do that either. But (laughs) the church we're in in St. Louis, there was uh, an elderly gentleman. He was the uncle of the pastor, and he kissed everybody on the neck. He had such a beautiful spirit, wonderful elderly man. Anyway, I want to talk to you today about two trees. It's hard to see that. Kind of, I can't see it. Maybe that's better. Yeah, that one's better. That one is pretty blurry. Two trees one choice. Thank you, Sister Allie, for finding that image. The, the tree, by the way, is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, you know what the cross is. Well, the enemy was fighting me uh, a few moments ago over this message, Sister Leslie, when you sang about the cross. And that cleared the way for what we're about to preach to you here today. But I want to summarize the events contained in our text. Take a few minutes to do so, but I think it's important that we do. Because the first man, of course, that being Adam, was formed from the dust of the ground. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's much more to all of this that meets the eye. I mean, God put thought into forming the first man. And very carefully formed him. And it, it's very disturbing to me with the, some of the most brilliant minds among us that are, that are exploring and discovering wonderful things about how the human body operates. And while it benefits a human body, none of them hardly believe in the creator. What a shame that is. But God took this man that he had formed and he breathes the breath of life. Into his nostrils, and Adam became a living soul. Now, the air that God filled Adam's lungs with was not ordinary air, it was not just regular air. It's not like someone needs mouth to mouth resuscitation, and in case they do, Brother Galan, I'll assign you to take care of that business. Air consists of basically four components. Water vapor, oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. But what entered into Adam's lifeless body was not just ordinary air. It was the breath of God. And when the breath of God entered into the nostrils of Adam, something happened. Adam became a living soul. Up until that time... He was not a living soul. He was a a body that God had formed from a handful of dirt that he scooped out of the ground that he had created. But Adam became a living soul. All of the biological processes necessary for Adam to live began in that instant. But Adam was more than just a biological creature. He was a human being with a living, not just a soul, but with a living soul. I defer you to something that occurred just prior to the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Uh, it was in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Ghost was poured out, but this is in John chapter 20. Verse 21, Jesus said unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said these words, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, you have to understand something, at least you should, that when you receive the Holy Ghost, there's more to that than you just speaking with other tongues. You need to understand what actually occurs in your life when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When you receive the Holy Ghost, the very breath of God is breathed into you. And as with Adam, there is a spontaneous transmission of divine life and of divine power. God did not give us the Holy Ghost for us to just speak in tongues a little bit and be satisfied with that. He gave us the Holy Ghost for the same reason. He breathed into the nostrils of Adam so that we would take dominion, territorial dominion in the earth. It is written that God planted a garden eastward in Eden, And that is where he put the man that he had formed. And within this garden paradise, the Lord caused to grow every tree, literally is what it says, every tree, that's pleasant to the eyes, and that which is good for food. Along with a smorgasbord of healthy and succulent fruit, in the midst of the garden there was another tree. It was the tree of life. The tree of life, since this predates sin, now think about this. There was no disease, there was no pain, there was no war, there was no sickness, there was no death, there was no crime, there was no theft, there was no lying, there was no adultery, there's none of those things, and yet the tree of life predates sin, and it was essential for Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Now, this is a mystery. You go ahead and search it out. Now, there may be some, pardon me for saying it this way, some clowns on on YouTube that think they know what this is, but we don't. Now, we know there's a tree of life in heaven, so what is the mystery of the tree of life? Many scholars suggest that the tree of life, with its placement in the garden, was to serve as a symbol to Adam and Eve of their life in fellowship with God and also of their total dependence on him. Yeah, you're in paradise. Yeah, it never snows. Yeah, it don't rain. It never gets over 70. There's always a slight breeze. Got all the food you want. Everything's great. There are no, there's, there's nothing here that can harm you. But this is not what you're supposed to really be enjoying here. You're supposed to be enjoying fellowship with God and so Adam and Eve were uh, as mentioned more than biological creatures they were spiritual beings you are a spiritual being I promise you this I can't make a lot of promises but I promise you this one day you're going to leave that body and you're going to find out you're a spiritual being and if you leave that body without the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life you will woe is me for all time forever you may not be interested right now. You will be interested then. If if anybody dies without God, if they could go back just 60 seconds. Just send me back for a minute, Jesus. At least i got to be near water so I can get baptized in Jesus' name. <clears throat> and so for Adam and Eve, um, they would have daily encounters with God. We talk a lot about that, don't we, brother, a lot. Daily encounters in the secret place of the most High, because the Lord would come down daily, meet with them, Bible says in the cool of the day, and uh, they would enjoy fellowship every single day with God. And of course, I believe this is a lesson for us. I'm going somewhere, just give me time to get there. It's a lesson that we could learn, I think we need to learn, that we will only discover our deepest fulfillment and purpose in life through daily fellowship and communion with God. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Disney World does not bring that. Universal doesn't bring that. The best cruise you've ever been on does not bring that. There's nothing like fellowship and communion with God. So since the tree of life appears to have been essential, at least in respect to the perpetuation of the life that God gave them, uh, Adam and Eve did not partake of that tree by choice, they had to partake of that tree. And the reason I mention that is because we're going to talk about choice today. Choice. They had a choice concerning the tree of knowledge and good and evil, but not the tree of life. So because of that, the tree of life is not one of the two trees that we are going to address here today. There was another notable tree in the garden, and I know you're way ahead of me, called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And while Adam and Eve could not, or while they could partake of any other tree, they could not eat of that tree without consequences. They could not partake of that tree without the penalty of death. God said, you will surely, there's no doubt about this, Adam and Eve, you will surely die. So it's here that we discover for the first time in the scriptures, this is where I want to begin building my case, that man was created to be a free moral agent and thus would be personally responsible for his or her own destiny. The sole reason for the tree of knowledge in good and evil, or why God placed that in the garden, was to provide Adam and Eve with a choice. If we came to your home today and we tied you up with you kicking and screaming and brought you to church, you probably wouldn't get that much out of it because you would not be here by choice. And so the question is, why would God put such a tree in the garden knowing that eventually the man and the woman is going to eat of that fruit? Now, he knows that because he knows everything. Why would God do that? Every home Bible study I've ever taught, they always ask this question. What was God thinking? Why would he put the tree, that tree in the garden if he knew man was going to mess up? The answer is really very simple because if Adam and Eve did not have that tree, they would have been prisoners. They They would have had no choice but to serve God and live for God and live as God had created them to be where he created them to live. So God had to give them a choice, an opportunity to choose another way, to choose another place, to choose another God, to choose another plan. And the tree henceforth offered them that choice. And the only way that God could be assured that man served him out of true love and devotion was to give him an opportunity to choose otherwise. Personally, the little I know about heaven and hell, I wish you'd just take my choice away and just make me go to heaven. Just make me go. There are times in the word of God, if you read them, that God will override your will and he will make you. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. wasn't part of my plan, Brother Khan, but he makes us sometimes. The same question could be posed as to why God would allow the serpent access to the pride and joy of his creation. Why would God let the serpent enter the garden knowing full well that he's going to lie and scheme and do everything he can to deceive Adam and Eve and convince them to eat of this garden? First of all, I want you to understand, though we live in a corrupt world and there are devils and demons and false gods and idolatry and false doctrine everywhere. God is not afraid of competition. If you can't live for God in the midst of a competitive environment, then he don't want you anyway. You say, but Adam and Eve failed the test. Yes, they did. And their failure was not only personal, it plunged the entire human race, which, by the way, includes you and I, into thousands of years of war, disease and pestilence and corruption and horrible things that man would perpetrate upon one another. Romans 5:12 for as one man by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Now you may decide and determine and choose what, degree of sin that you're going to commit you can fall in the gutter and you can you can live in the gutter morally and depravity if you want to you can choose to be a a, a diplomatic sinner white tie and and sport coat kind of a sinner I'm not going to walk into a business with a gun and rob a convenience store but I will cheat on my taxes and and I will I will cheat other men out of their money and I will I will Be a thief in other ways. I may not be a drunk on alcohol, but I'm drunk on greed and money and possessions and and pursuit of stuff. So while we didn't choose to be sinners, we choose how far we're going to carry that. Verse 19, For us, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Adam and Eve had to fail so that many would be able to make a better choice than they did. And so while Adam and Eve, along with millions of others, have made wrong choices in life, in relationships, in business, in all kinds of avenues and venues, thankfully there are those that have made the right choice, the choice to serve God, to live for God, and to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so the Garden of Eden, folks, in case you're wondering, was not a mistake. It was all part of God's perfect plan. Praise God. When we look at the Garden of Eden, there was only one tree. I'm going to get down to brass tacks now. One tree. Um, only one tree. When you think about this, it's all kind of tree, but there was only tree that Adam and Eve were commanded not to partake of. Now, if we broaden our peripheral view of everything, then what we realize is that out of the whole world, I don't know how many million square miles of landmass there is on the earth, but out of the whole world at that time, there was only one tree, that would bring sin and rebellion and disobedience into your life. If there were people on the other side of the world, they would have to travel thousands of miles to get over to the Middle East, wherever the Garden of Eden was planted, to this one tree that would would break their communion with God. One single tree. And just the fruit of that one single tree, one tree, there was one tree out of the whole world that would bring sin upon the human race. The Hebrew mitzvah contains 613 laws. And so they provide at least 613 ways to sin. 613 ways to commit iniquity, to sin against God. Not that hard, given me 613 ways, I'm sure I can figure out how to violate the Word of God and the holiness of God. Yet in the Garden of Eden, there was only one thing they could do. One thing they could do. Nothing else you can do will bring sin, but if you eat of that tree, it will break your communion with God, and it will perpetuate a curse upon the entire human race. I'd like to tell you when we walk out of here today, that there's just one thing you can do that will cause you to sin and lose out with God, but I, I can't tell you that. There are thousands of things, thousands of opportunities. That one single tree produced the fruit. Bishop, was it an apple? No, it was not an apple. So how do you know that? Well, because the fruit of that tree produced a poison that was so deadly that it would enter into the DNA of humanity into the entire soul of the human race and would poison not just Adam and Eve, but every one of their offspring until the end of time. So Adam and Eve was given a choice to obey God or to disobey God. Perhaps this is where Shakespeare came upon his famous line that we all are very familiar with, to eat or not to eat. That is the question. So either way, if the serpent had not entered into the garden, probably hypothetically guessing Adam and Eve may have never eaten of the fruit of that tree. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Don't you think Eve hadn't looked at that tree and thought about it? Don't you think the idea had not already been in her mind the question, the wondering, I wonder what that fruit tastes like. But perhaps if it was not for the serpent, she would have never given in to uh, even those random thoughts that she had in her mind, but he did and they did, and the rest is history. So the price that God was willing to pay to have people live on this planet that will love and serve him out of true devotion, even though given other choices. He was willing to pay that price. After the first man and woman foolishly chose to eat of that tree, they were immediately expelled from paradise. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there's resistance in this room. Uh, There is satanic resistance in this room. I knew it would be here, but I didn't know it would be here on this order. Uh, But there is resistance in this room. And for some reason, the Lord reminded me of something that happened Uh, 40-some years ago, and I'm just going to say it. I I don't know how relative it is, but it doesn't matter to me. Here it is. There was an elder in church. The elder in church was uh, our pastor's father, Uh, Brother Farino. Him and his wife uh, were able to walk on water. I'm telling you, these people were anointed. They had evangelized. They, They prayed over 100 people through to the Holy Ghost in the recliner in their living room. Elder Farino had a photographic memory. He, he would just, he would go up to the pulpit with a little toolbox, set it up there, and he would just pick something out and just start quoting Scripture and preaching on it because he could remember everything. And so there was a time when there was another man who spoke something against the elder, spoke against the elder. And uh, I don't know who knew it, but we knew it. And so there was a, a, a service shortly after that where Elder Farino gave a message in tongues, and then he interpreted the tongues, and his interpretation was judgment on the man that had spoken a word against him. Now, it wasn't another person. It wasn't an evangelist. It wasn't the pastor. It wasn't another member. It was the very man to whom the, uh, the, the thing was spoken. Spoke. Guess what that man did after that tongue interpretation? he ran to the elder fell upon him weeping please forgive me pray for me now a lot of people would have said yeah well that's just you that's your flesh speaking to me you better listen to me right now the Holy Ghost wants to speak to his people but we're not listening to what the Holy Ghost is saying because we already got our mind made up but my Bible says touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm I wouldn't cross him for all the tea in China. And I'm the bishop of the church. I wouldn't cause division in this church for any amount of money or prestige because God will judge that kind of junk. You have to understand something. The enemy wants to destroy our witness and our testimony. So I fought the devil last week, and I'll fight him here, but I guarantee you God's going to get the victory. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Brother Boyd, let me back up. When I was passionate, I already contemplated this. If the district superintendent called me and said there's accusations, I'd say, set me down and we'll work it out. Let's work through it. I wouldn't blast him. I wouldn't argue with him. I wouldn't just, okay, okay, superintendent, because stuff was happening a number of years ago. Well, if something happens, just submit and let God sort it out. But if you rebel, I don't care how right your right is. I don't care how right your cause is. If you rebel, God will hold you in judgment because of it. Because I'm going to tell you, and this is what's going on right now, rebellion is like witchcraft because it casts a spell on everything that God tries to do in the congregation. (laughs) Come on, I'm being used in the Holy Ghost right now. It's not the norm. It's not in my notes, but it's the word of God. My God. So there's some intercessors here. You're going to help me war right now. Do some spiritual warfare right now, so we can get this word out. This word. After Adam and Eve foolishly ate of this fruit, it plunged the world into four thousand years of horrible, horrible things. Uh, we have lived; we live under the consequences of their actions. The reason life's a struggle uh, is because of their actions. Uh, Of course, there were descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, uh, that received grace from God. They were separated under God, and they were placed under this paradigm of laws and commandments. And although they were separated under God with these 613 laws... Uh, Those laws were not sufficient to break the curse. Ladies and gentlemen, the human race is under a curse. Uh, The serpent was cursed, the woman was cursed, and the ground was cursed because of Adam's disobedience. Galatians 3.10 says, for as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which were written in the book of the law to do them. But that man, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Holy Ghost, leave me alone so I can preach. If you can't live holy without condemning other people that are not as holy as you think you are, you have made a dire mistake. If you can't live a holy separate life without looking down your self-righteous nose at other people cause they don't line up or live up, God help you. There's too much of that junk In the apostolic community. And I'm trying. I'm really trying. Speaking about the law, I'm only going to read verse 4 of Hebrews 9. You're working the projector the sake of continuity and context and time, it says, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And so in case you haven't figured it out yet, religion is not the answer. It never has been. It never will be. So the reason that you and others are perhaps struggling with, uh, let's say, alcohol, Cigarettes, cigarettes, or other forms of nicotine, or with drugs—whether they're prescription or whether you buy them at the up at the corner—whether you're struggling struggling with pornography or moral issues, it's not because not because you're a worthless human being. You've been created by God for divine purpose and destiny. But you, if you have some of these problems and sins in your life, It's because of the curse. Once the curse is broken in your life, I'm saying in your life, you won't have those addictions anymore. Once that curse is broken, your desire for alcohol, your need for alcohol, your craving for nicotine, that craving will be broken. The destructive and and the corrosive effects of sin will be broken. Once the curse is broken, sin will no longer dictate who you are or what your destiny will be. Hebrews 9 and 5 says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering. Thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So for 1,500 years, there's no longer a tree standing in the Garden of Eden. That's long gone now. There's no tree to look to. There's no place else to look. Man's wandering the earth looking for an answer. That tree's gone. There are no other trees. But after 1,500 years that the Mosaic Law of Repeatedly failed to remove the curse. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Hope was born in Bethlehem. He lived for 33 years. And during the last three and a half years of his life, Jesus did everything conceivable, everything possible, everything he could do, Lord, to remove the horrible, and disfiguring effects that sin had had on the human race, but still, out of all of the miracles, signs, and wonders, the curse was still not broken. He even reversed the power of death, the Bible says. Many, not just Lazarus, not just the, 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 the widow's son from Nain, many came out of of the grave but the curse was not broken demonic powers principalities were uh, subdued and they were cast out of many but the curse was not broken so the question is how can this horrible curse possibly be broken since it's the fruit of a tree that brought this curse upon mankind, that's why we had to go down that road, could there possibly be another tree whose fruit, if partaken of, could break the curse? If the fruit of one tree had the ability to poison the entire human race, Is there another tree whose fruit can provide the cure or the antidote to that poison? As it turns out, the only way to break the curse would be with another curse. Look, when God curses something, it's hard to break that curse. So the only way the curse in Genesis 3 could be broken was with another curse. Henceforth Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. We need at this point to take a trip to the streets of Jerusalem, circa 33 A.D., it is is written in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 26. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, that being Pontius Pilate, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plated a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and knocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. After being horribly scourged, they say that men that were scourged, many times their organs and entrails were exposed, even hanging out of their body. After being scourged, the man who was able to walk on water, the man who was able to calm the stormy sea, was too weak to carry his own cross. And so Simon of Serene, was compelled to carry it for him. When they reached Golgotha, a place that resembled a skull, rightly so, that is where they crucified Jesus Christ. In Josh Herring's latest book entitled Fast Forward, he writes that the cross was the cruelest and most painful of all forms of execution in first century Roman society. He goes on to write, flogging or other forms of inflicting pain usually took place before the crucifixion, then the criminal would be forced to carry his crossbeam to the place of execution. It's also cited that many who were even suspected that they would be convicted of a crime, they committed suicide knowing that they were going to be crucified. And the pain of crucifixion would be too painful to endure. It's no wonder that Jesus cried out to his father in the garden of Gethsemane. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Let me paraphrase what could be said. What possibly can be uttered in any language that would change my fate. Then he said, Father, save me from this hour. But For this cause came I unto this hour. This is why Mary had me in Bethlehem. This is why that you gave me birth. This is why I am here. This is the very reason why I am here. For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave him to what? Gave him to this. Gave him to the scourger. Gave him to the crucifier. Gave him to the hatred and the anger of the very man that he had created and given life to. I suppose that it's fitting that Jesus would be crucified between two thieves, one hung on his left and one hung on his right. These two men had lived a life of crime and debauchery. They had feasted off of others their whole lives until they were finally caught. And this represents the dichotomy that exists within the human race to this day. In his bitterness, the one thief railed upon Jesus Christ, saying, if thou be the Christ, it was with bitterness. He didn't, he didn't ask a viable question. He he said it in and spewed it in bitterness. If thou be the Christ, save thyself and uh. But the other thief spoke up. Understand, he is in the agony of agonies. His body is swelling from tissues from the inside out. And in all of his pain, in all of his suffering, he spoke up in defense of Christ with true regret for the life that he had lived. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me. Probably with broken lips and broken speech. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus mercifully said, verily I say unto thee today. Wow, what a promise. Not tomorrow, not next week. Some people uh, would hang on a cross for days. Before they finally died, but Jesus said, Don't worry about it, son. Today, thou wilt be with me in paradise, far away from where you are right now. Luke 23, it was written, uh, it was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That's three hours from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon when the sun was normally its brightest, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. There was something right then so powerful and profound happening in the spirit world. Now, there's, the, there's the, what you see, a man hanging on a cross, suffering, other two men with him, People gathered around wailing, weeping uh, for those that are hanging on the cross. But there's something happening in the spirit world uh, that had percussions that were so great that it changed the actual atmosphere of that entire region. Something was happening in the spirit world. Man saw the physical manifestation but there was something happened that man could not see but it was having repercussions it was it was like vibration spreading out and it was seen by everyone of course that was present so whenever the natural world is altered by that which occurs in the spirit world all of humanity should be on alert because the world is about to change forever have you ever thought about the words where it says when he returns every eye shall see him no matter where a person is on this earth there would be something so profound happening in the spirit world that every eye We'll see it happen. It was 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, I find that so significant and moving. He said, Father, he said it loud enough that it could be heard. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Jesus' death on the cross, um, Brought something into view that had not been seen for 4,000 years. Brought something into view that did not even exist for 4,000 years. For the first time since the creation of man, or I should say since the fall of man, there's a second tree now that has been erected that stands upon the horizon of mankind. i got to bring this into focus now. Just as the tree of knowledge of good and evil stood conspicuously in the garden, now the cross of Jesus Christ stands conspicuously before the entire world. Oh, yeah, they took it down. Josephus buried the body of Jesus. That cross is no longer standing, but that's why he said you preach the gospel because every time you preach the gospel, that cross is erected. It will stand conspicuously before the entire world to see. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was different than every other tree. I don't know if you've ever heard this before or not. It was different from every other fruit-bearing tree in the garden in that it never produced a second tree. All the other trees, the fruit could fall to the ground, birds could carry the seed, and other trees would sprout up, and the, trees, the fruit trees of the garden actually multiplied as Adam and Eve lived in the garden. But not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's only one tree. There's only one God. There's only one cross. There's only one Savior. So I personally believe this is just me bestowing on you with my opinion. Uh, my opinion is that this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was specifically divinely created by God. There was no other tree like it, nor has there ever been since. So the placement of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden was an act of creative choice in order to bring about God's perfect plan and in the same manner so is the cross. The cross was erected by divine decree. Don't give yourself so much credit, Pontius Pilate. Come on, Sadducees. Don't pat yourselves on the back too hard because Jesus died by divine decree. Just as there was one tree that could execute Adam and Eve's exit from the garden, there's just one tree that will facilitate and allow your entrance into the kingdom of God. You can go to every other church in town and in a hundred towns just like this, and I'm going to tell you, if they don't tell you, you must repent. If they don't tell you, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ if you want your sins remitted, if they don't tell you that you must receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, if they do not tell you that that experience must be followed by a lifestyle of holiness and separation and devotion to God, then you better flee. You better run. You better find a church that's going to tell you that. The Bible says that the tree was pleasant to the eyes. I always thought persimmons looked good until I bit into one. Some of you don't know, they're bitter. Bleach. You can make persimmon pie, but by the time you add enough sugar to make it sweet, it's no longer persimmon pie, it's sugar pie. Very similar, by the way, to rhubarb. you got to add enough sugar to rhubarb. It's not rhubarb pie anymore, it's sugar pie. But it's pleasant to the eyes. But when you talk about this other tree, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's ugly. They're suffering and dying and there's pain. and It's horrifying when you look at the tree that stood at Golgotha. It's repulsive. Christians are even accused of preaching a bloody gospel. You better believe we do. We'll not back down from that accusation. Because you take blood out of the cross and out of the message, you no longer have salvation. So just as Adam and Eve had to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil, so if you want to be saved today, you have to partake of the fruit of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I already told you what that fruit is, repentance, water, baptism, Holy Ghost. Just looking at the tree, believing in the tree. It's not going to be enough. So the serpent knew that he had to convince Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he also knows now he has to convince others not to eat. And Oh, how convincing he is. By providing mankind virtually hundreds if not thousands of other choices other than the true fruit of that tree upon which Jesus died. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, being more specific, does not only point to the cross, but it tells one how to partake of the fruit of that cross. And until you partake of the fruit, you might be blessed, Your life might have even improved over what it used to be. But to get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, you have to partake of the fruit of that tree. Worship team, would you join me on the platform? There's one last thing you need to know before we open this altar. It's commonly known and accepted um, that the blood of sacrificial animals was not sufficient To remove a person's sin and that true and complete remission of sins requires the blood of Jesus Christ. And so our deep and heartfelt and uh, our gratitude to God, our reverence to God, based on his willingness to go to the cross and shed that blood, we need that blood if we're going to have remission of sins and be saved, our gratitude and our thanksgiving is what gives birth and way to our praise and our worship and our rejoicing. But there's more to the story than that, and I think some of us are unaware of the full price that Jesus paid on your behalf. Romans chapter 5, 7 through 9 For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we've reckoned with that. That was 2,000 years ago. Uh, and he did that long before we were ever born and had an opportunity to live. And we've, we have reconciled that in our minds. Much more then, be now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, lest we should boast. But Moses sang a song in Deuteronomy, I think, that says it very well. 32nd chapter, verse 4, he declares the following. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. Hold on to that now. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right. You see, now that is one of the things where I derive a fear of God. He doesn't miss anything. He is a God that is just, and he's a God of judgment. And so I pray often, God, don't let me miss something along the way. Deal bountifully with me. In Abraham's pleading with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said unto God something that is very powerful. He he said it in the form of a question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's pretty bold. Shall not the God of all the earth do right? When he was pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, a city, cities that were completely given over to immorality and depravity. Because you see, one of God's attributes is judgment. God's not going to judge. He has to judge sin. It's his nature to do so, to judge sin and unrighteousness. Everybody thinks that he won't do it. The God's a God of love. Yes, he is. That's one of his attributes. But one attribute does not ever cancel out any of his other attributes. A cursive study of the Bible will reveal a God that has both mercy and a God that, that bestows judgment. But while the Psalms declare that God's mercy endures unto all generations, God's mercy does not revoke, does not revoke or alter or dismiss his judgment. Now, we can't can't comprehend that because our emotions get in the way of even rational thinking. But God doesn't react that way. He doesn't live They He didn't act that way. That's not God. So even though he's a God of mercy and even though God forgives sin, listen to me now, especially you that have been baptized in Jesus' name and who have received the Holy Ghost, just because God forgives sin, divine justice must be meted out because that's God's nature. Sin must be judged. His justice must be satisfied. So where does that leave us? What do we do now? See, we we, we believe in, rightly so, and embrace the power that's in the blood. And we think the blood takes care of everything. It does it. Say, oh my gosh, did the bishop just say that? Yeah, and I'm going to prove it. And so we rejoice in the blood, but we forget about other factors. The Bible says something about crucifying the Lord of glory afresh. And I'm going to explain that to you now. I believe the answer lies in the fruit of one tree that presently stands conspicuously before the whole world is the cross of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 11, I probably called them a little early, but they're sitting down, right? Yeah, okay. He said, and he said, woe unto you also ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. I promise I'm I'm almost finished. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. See, even Jesus repeated himself at times. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. Kind of makes me glad I'm not a prophet or an apostle. That the blood of all the prophets, all the prophets, which were shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. I believe as he was speaking this, the blood was draining out of the faces of those that were hearing his words. Then he went on to say from the blood of Abel, Under the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Ladies and gentlemen, even the flood that left only eight people alive on the planet did not cover the judgment of God for the blood that was shed from Abel's body. So I have to make a confession to you, and I confess that I always thought so long that he was pronouncing judgment upon Jerusalem and Israel on that generation a judgment that will be fulfilled when Titus the Roman general marched upon the city laid siege tore it down and massacred thousands of people in 70 AD I used to think that surely was the judgment that that Jesus was talking about but listen to me all the prophets Not just one or two or or a dozen, but the blood of all the prophets. And so I extrapolated that and made a calculation. And the calculation is this. When you consider the magnitude of the judgment that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, The breadth of judgment that would have been required to account for the shedding of the blood of all the prophets from the foundation of the world, including from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, God's judgment upon just generation would have been so catastrophic that the entire nation of Israel would have been annihilated, and the land would have been uninhabitable for virtually thousands of years. So why was this judgment not poured out on that generation as Jesus predicted? Anybody want to propose an answer? Jesus said it was going to happen. Then why didn't it happen? The fact of the matter is, it did happen. Jesus Christ took the awful judgment that he pronounced upon that generation, upon himself, on the cross upon which he was crucified. Because he knew they can never take it. They'll never survive it. They'll never endure They'll never be able after that. They will not be alive. The land will perish. The people will perish. So he took that judgment upon himself. I believe that Isaiah, you can stand with me, said it perhaps best when he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted because... Not because of Caiaphas or Pilate. But because the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did he shed righteous blood for which we desperately need for the remission of sin and to cover? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There is power. Wonderworking power in the blood. But furthermore, what does this have then to do with us? All of the sins that you committed in your life prior to your initial repentance, water baptism, I was 24 years old. Trust me, there was a lot put under the blood back then and many things since then. All of the sins that we have placed under the saving and precious blood of Jesus Christ through our repentance and our obedience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank God those sins can never be used against us in judgment, but do you know why? Do you understand why that that is true? It is true because the judgment from God upon that sin was placed upon Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross he's the lamb of God he was slain from the very foundation of the world it was God's intent his blood washes us white as snow and he suffered but he didn't just he could have shed his blood if, if the blood's the issue come on listen to me if the blood's the issue If all we need is blood for cleansing, we don't need a cross for that. We don't need crucifixion just to get the blood out of the veins of Jesus Christ. But there was more to the cross than just shedding of his blood. Fortunately, so many people are nonchalant about this. But stripes, no, let me back up. These stripes that were laid upon his back, those stripes were laid on him so that they would not have to be laid on you. All sin has to be judged by God. The pain that he endured, unspeakable suffering, it should have been my pain. But for the gospel of Jesus Christ, It should have been my suffering, but all of that that was a result of my sin and my rebellion and my drug use and and my profanity and my ungodliness was placed upon my Savior. So I'm not just going to walk around and say, well, thank God. God for a little blood and that's all there is no thank God for the blood but not only when he gave that blood he gave his body to take my punishment and my judgment his humiliation should have been mine the nails that were driven into his hands were meant for me but because of his mercy I will never know what that felt The scars from the horrible ordeal that he endured, I think this is so important, remains in his body. Even after the resurrection, he carried the scars. Jesus said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger, behold my hands, reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. I'm pretty sure to the point of being very confident that when we get to heaven whatever physical and emotional scars that we may carry to death will no longer be visible. They'll no longer be seen. But when you see him, you will see hands that bear the scars of the nails. When you see him, you will see the place where the thorns of his crown was embedded deep within his skull. When he reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem, oh, he will be a king that will reign for a thousand years. He will carry the scars that he received, taking your judgment, taking your punishment, taking your pain, taking your humiliation. Those scars will remain in the body of our Lord throughout the millennial reign. We often defer to Joshua's plea to Israel. Sometimes we preach entire messages on it. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Let me remind you that there's really only one viable choice. Now that tree, that cross that stands before the whole world, there's only one way out of sin and one way into the kingdom. It's that cross. But as we pose this question and as you contemplate the answer in this altar, there's only one choice that makes any sense for you, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ it's that cross I want you to close your eyes I want you to with eyes closed I want you to visualize the cross not an empty cross we don't put pictures of crucifixes and that kind of stuff in our church but I want you to visualize it right now. Whatever that Lord and Savior is enduring, He is enduring it so that you don't have to. Whatever anger, wrath, punishment from God that must be placed upon all sin, because no sin escapes that, the reason you don't have to endure it is because Jesus took your suffering and your punishment upon him self I wish that you would approach this altar with a fresh revelation of what it was required to save you from a lifestyle of sin and an eternity in hell I wish you would approach the altar this morning with fresh insight not with some nonchalant gravitas. Thank you for a little blood you shed on my behalf, but God, thank you for the pain I will never feel. Thank you for the suffering I will never endure. Thank you for the stripes that will never be placed upon my back. And may God give us a newfound respect and awe, not just for his power, but for his grace and for his mercy may the lord draw you to him right now may the lord draw you to him right now may the lord begin to breathe upon this congregation May the Lord break through vindictiveness and bitterness right now. May the Spirit of God break through the spirit of rebellion and speak pearls of wisdom and knowledge to people that desperately need to hear the voice of God. May the trail that we leave on the way to the altar be a trail of tears not just traditional, customary, go to the altar and pray for five minutes, but may we humbly prostrate ourselves before our God, before our Redeemer. For what else can we possibly do to honor Him right now? My God. My God. My God. My God, my God, my God, I know God can break through to you. I know the Spirit of God can break that spell that the devil has you under. I know that the presence of God and conviction can break that spirit and reach you in your darkness and reach you in that obstinate spirit that you possess. My God, my God. The word of God says in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at His will. I defy that spirit right now. I defy that spirit right now. I take authority over that spirit right now. But you got to break that chain. You have to break that dominion. You have to break that power. You have to break from that spell that has bound your thinking and has bound your spirit and is the poison that's entered into your soul that's brought pride into your spirit. You are the only one that can break that. We are right where God wants us right now. My God. My God. The Holy Ghost just spoke to me and said that there's some in this room that needs to go to somebody next week and you need to humble yourself before them. You need to get down and wash their feet and ask them to forgive you You need to go to somebody. No superficial, forgive me. I was out of line. No, 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 no. We need to fix some things. And sometimes the only way to fix them is on our knees, on our face, humbling ourselves before one another. Ministries are hanging in the balance right now. Ministries are hanging in the balance. Souls are hanging in the balance. All because we have played down what Jesus really did for us on the cross. I think he's taken enough of my punishment. I don't want to make him endure anymore for me. He suffered enough. Praise God. Let's come to the altar right now. We're not braiding our burdens. We're not breaking our heavy loads. We have to come and humble ourselves before the Lord. We have to plead that God will forgive our foolishness, our folly, our carnality. Forgive us for listening to unclean spirits and the voices that are not from heaven and not from our pulpit and not from our ministers. Forgive us for thinking ourselves above our station in the church, our, our place in the body of Christ. Forgive us for usurping supering our authority over the authorities, God, that you have placed over us. Forgive us for thinking that we're somebody when we're not. You've taken enough for us on the cross. We don't want to put any more on you, Jesus. You have suffered enough, my God.